joining me next is Michael Kramer. He's an acclaimed development economist and the current uh, Gates Professor of Developing Societies in, at Harvard University. He is a research affiliate at Innovations for Poverty Action, an organization very closely affiliated with the EA movement that focuses on rigorous evidence-based initiatives in helping work on some of the worst conditions happening in developing countries. He's a Giving What We Can member, and he's founded a program to help graduate students uh, explore firsthand the kinds of problems that they so often work with in a hypothetical or policy space. So without further ado, take the stage. Great. Thank you very much. Um, before, I, before I put on that hat, let me just uh, uh, briefly mention uh, another hat that I have um, that relates to the last uh, presentation, which is I, I'm scientific director for a part of U.S. Agency for International Development called Development Innovation Ventures. And I think that is, and you know, my experience very much echoes that of Sebastian, uh, a lot of people wanting to do the right thing, but also a, a big role that I think uh, people from this movement can, can bring to it. And in particular, as he highlighted, one role is evidence, and that's a uh, particular focus of Development Innovation Ventures. Um, so we, uh, we provide funding, and I know some people out here are involved in, uh, in initiatives, either to, to pilot a new idea, uh, so that's small, relatively small amounts of funding by, by U.S. government standards, uh, or to rigorously test it. And then for those efforts that, uh, that develop, have you know, rigorous evidence of impact and cost effectiveness or of passing a market test, um, evidence to try to transition that to scale. So I encourage people who are interested in, you know, have ideas that they think might be appropriate to visit our, our website and, uh, and consider applying if you think it's appropriate. Or, you know, if you're, uh, you know, we don't have uh, positions available right now, but uh, if you're if you're interested in working in this type of environment, uh, you know, monitor uh, our our website as well in case we're, we have positions open. Um, and you know, just to reinforce one uh, other point that came up uh, on the importance of developing country governments uh, to, to pick up on on uh, both Alan and, and Rachel's uh, comment. Um, so the, the work that the U.S. government do, is doing and the British government doing is in, incredibly important on this area. But the Indian government um, is, was, is also made a huge contribution in this area, when, and that was in part based on on, uh, on the evidence. Um, so you know, they, they brought the uh, uh, treatment of neglected tropical diseases to uh, hundreds of millions of more, well, uh, somewhere between 100 and 200 million more people on a sustained basis, overwhelmingly with Indian government funds. Um, and, you know, people in this room, uh, J-PAL, Evidence Action, uh, many others played a big role in that. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, to put on my, my academic hat, um, you know, there's a, a qu question for uh, effective altruists of, at what point do you stop collecting evidence, and at what point do you start acting? And I would argue that those are two very different questions, and that's part of what I'll be, be arguing in this. Uh, but how much evidence do we need for different uh, for different uh, uh, for each of those decisions? So, if you think that a, a goal for effective altruists is maximizing the impact of the resources that they have, you can think of a let's start by thinking about a really simple case, a case where either something works or it doesn't work, then 
Is it worth spending resources on it? Well, it, you just take the probability of the impact times the value of the impact. And if the, and you make the decision based on that. More generally though, you know, there might be a range of possible impacts. Let's take this example that came up, the example of deworming. Well, you know, it might have, uh, you know, there's multiple studies out there with estimating different impacts. You could assign some probability in a particular location of each of those impacts. And then you just sum up over that, over each of the possible range uh, impacts times the probability of that impact. And then you see if that justifies the, the use of the resources. Okay. Now, how do you value that? Well, for utilitarians, the, the value would be in, in welfare or utility terms. And I'll explain why that's important in a second. If you're thinking at this, you know, this formula here looks very much like the formula for an investment decision, if you're a private investor. Um, but there's one big difference, and I think that comes from, uh, and I'll explain that in the, in a, in the slide. So, key concept in economics and just, you know, and for effective altruists in particular is diminishing marginal utility of money. If you have a little bit of money, you'll spend it on things that are incredibly important, like having enough food to eat. As you get more and more money, you can move down a hierarchy of priorities, generally, I mean, this may be a slight oversimplification, to things like you know, getting a bigger screen TV, for example. And that improves happiness and welfare, but probably not as much as for a family that doesn't have enough food to get enough food. So, um, so what are the implications of that? Well, one is that if you can transfer resources to the poorest, that's going to generally improve uh, welfare. But once you wouldn't transfer a huge amount to one poor person to get them to the point where they could live uh, a life where they're having a you know extremely large flat screen TV. You would say, well, let's let's keep helping the poorest person once we provide a bit of help to another, and that means that the whereas for an individual, if they think about how do they want to take on risk. Well, for an individual, if I take on a, a financial risk, say a gamble uh, for a large, large gamble, if I'm going to bet a million dollars and give up a million dollars in assets for, for the possibility of winning two million dollars, well, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to, that, the formula that I put up earlier, if it's expressed in dollar terms, that would say I wouldn't want to take, I, I might take that risk, but it shouldn't be in dollar terms, it should be in welfare terms. And the first million dollars means a lot more to me than the second million dollars. So I won't take an actuarially fair gamble uh, of a million dollars versus two million dollars. On the other hand, if you're thinking about a, a situation for, as an effective altruist and, and transfers, well, there it's quite different because you're not going to be moving down that curve of diminishing marginal utility very far. A 50% chance of getting a $10 uh, per person benefit for 100 people is roughly equivalent to a to a hundred percent chance of uh, reaching fifty people, or a hundred hundred dollar chance of a hundred percent chance of five dollar benefit per person. So these are all roughly because people's lives, even poor people's lives, their overall lifetime income is not going to be that affected by. It'll be better off, but it's not going to. The diminishing marginal utility won't really hit hit uh, that level. So that's a, a second, uh, an implication of, uh, of basic economic theory for effective altruists. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second on this question of evidence. 
One other implication of diminishing marginal utility is that if you're thinking about how to spend your money and how to give away your money, there's a big cost for waiting. Why? Because the world is, you know, right now, poverty is, is diminishing at a rapid rate. Um, there's huge economic growth in, in, in many uh, low-income countries. And that means that spending your money now while people are still poor has an advantage over waiting. And obviously, you can earn some money in the bank by keeping your money in the bank, but the interest rate uh, probably won't, uh, won't make up for that. Okay. So I'll, in general, argue that if you're a standard utilitarian, which I understand many of the philosophers here are, um, then you should be pretty close to risk neutral in, in, in thinking about alternative investments in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in transferring to the poor. And I, by the way, there's all sorts of other areas that effective altruists are interested in, uh, and existential risk, et cetera. I'm not going to comment on those. I'm going to focus on, on poverty, extreme poverty. Um, that's the area that I know. And within that, I'm going to focus on a few examples, which are also examples I know. So I don't want to, to, uh, to argue that there, that there aren't, you know, other very important causes. Okay. So let me just note here. If you're not an, an, uh, an, uh, a utilitarian, Maybe you have some other approach and you care a lot about you really don't like risk or you really don't like ambiguity, which uh, some people dis- distinguish from risk. Well, then you might want to support a charity like Give Directly, which is, you know, I think it's just transferring money to poor people. It's very hard to see how that could go wrong. And, you know, you can be quite confident. Or if you're very pessimistic about other alternatives, um, I would argue probably if you have to be very pessimistic to, um, but if you're very pessimistic about other alternatives, you, you could go forgive directly. Or if you're thinking about a general policy change and you think a lot of development spending is spent badly, and if you're pessimistic about that, you might say, well, better to, to move that all to something like give directly. Okay. But let me, so, so let me just go back to this, uh, this formula, summing up the probabilities of different, uh, outcomes times the value of those outcomes. So what are the implications of that? Well, one implication is that, as effective altruists, I think, recognize, high risk but very high payoff investments may be very reasonable, may be worth investing in. So if there's existential risks, maybe it's worth investing in, in, in addressing those. I'm not qualified to say whether they are or not, but conceptually uh, it, it makes sense. Another implication is there might be high-risk investments that are not of the existential sort, but you know you've got a candidate HIV vaccine, very unlikely to work, but the payoff from having an HIV vaccine would be huge. It may be worth investing in that. And I think those are things that the uh, that the community generally uh, recognizes. I think there's a little bit of a uh, I, I don't want to claim uh, everybody, but I think in the evidence-oriented community. There's, there may not be a full appreciation for another implication of this, which is that if you're looking at, you know, more, not these extremely low probabilities, but you're looking at moderate probabilities, you use, you should be using the same formula. And so, if you can generate a dollar for the poor with 99% probability, and let's say for, uh, which I think you, you can through give, give directly or others, or if you can, generate $1.25 for the poor with probability 0.8, um, well, you know, you might, you might want to, you might want to take the, the, uh, alternative that's the, that involves some risk. And that's not a, um, 
that's not a, uh, you know, that, that's not a judgment. I'm not going to make the judgment here about um, what those probabilities are. But if you're really interested in, each person may have to evaluate what they think those probabilities are. But if you're serious about this, you have to think about what the probabilities are and what the values are. And you need to use all the information that you can in trying to estimate those values, all the relevant information, the va- both the values and the probabilities. So let me just give an example. Um, and I'll give the example of deworming that, that Alan uh, mentioned. So if you think about mass drug administration for worms in a population, what type of evidence might you consider? Well, there's RCT evidence on mass drug administration. And um, you know I've done some academic work on this. Um, include, most recent is a, a new meta-analysis of multiple studies, which is on my website, to just to plug that a little bit. I'm also discussing that in a smaller group on, on Tuesday. Um, but you wouldn't only consider that. You'd also think about, there's also RCT evidence on, on deworming people who are known to be infected. And surely, with any reasonable model of the world, the evidence on the impact of deworming people who are known to be infected is relevant in thinking about what's the impact of treating a population in which, say, half the people are infected. And, um, um, and I think even the critics of mass drug administration would acknowledge that there's an impact on that people who are infected should be treated and that that's highly cost-effective. But you'd also think about evidence from non-randomized studies that uh, address potential confounding factors. So if you if it's a bad non-randomized study, well, you wouldn't want to think about it. But if it does a good job of addressing confounding factors, you know that should enter into the into the analysis as well. I'm not saying necessarily with the same weight as a as a randomized trial, but it should be part of the of your thought process. And you know, again, to um, to to give a final example, you should also think about the underlying science. Um, so I'll give an example. You know, the the underlying science, if you would definitely suggest that in populations where there's more people with worms, the benefits are likely to be greater than in populations where there's fewer people with worms. Why is that relevant? Well, if we think about policy, think about the uh, people at the World Health Organization. They recommend mass drug administration, and they, they what they have come up with is the 20% prevalence threshold for recommending mass deworming. If it's below that, they think it's not worth it. If it's above it, they think it is worth it. Now, when they're making that decision, there's just not sufficient evidence to know for sure that 20% is the exact right cutoff. That was based on a judgment call, and they have to take into account, you know, they should be taking, I don't know whether, you know, exactly how, how they came, you know, what, what the, uh, what the full process was, but they should be taking into account the available evidence now so they can make recommendations. A lot of developing countries will go with their recommendation and follow their recommendation. They've got to make some choice. Even if they want more evidence, they've got to recommend something now. And the the approach which makes sense is to say, based on the existing evidence, what, what should we do? Now, another question, and I would argue a very different question is, should you invest in collecting additional evidence? Well, there, I think you should apply the same uh, approach, and that's what standard uh, decision theory would, would suggest. You invest in additional evidence if the cost of collecting that evidence is less than the expected value of the evidence. And what's the expected value of the evidence? Uh, you know, let's say we're, there might be a pure science value, and I don't want to dismiss that, but from a, a utilitarian perspective, 
it would be the probability the additional evidence will change the future decision times the expected value of changing the uh, decision if if that if that uh, if it if indeed it changes the decision. So to be a little bit uh, more concrete, and there's some assumptions behind this which I won't go into detail here. Imagine there's a very low probability something's going to work. Like let's say a, a perpetual motion machine. We have strong reason to believe that won't work. Then. It doesn't make sense to invest a lot of resources in building the perpetual motion machine on a mass scale and having a factory to build that. But it also, it's so low a probability that even though it would be great to have a perpetual motion machine, it probably doesn't make sense to invest millions of dollars in research for it. Now, let's say it's a somewhat higher probability. So still low, but somewhat higher. Let's say there's a new approach to teaching uh, math or language that there's no evidence for, but based on theoretical grounds, we think it might be, be pretty effective. Well, it might not yet be time to implement that at scale, because perhaps there's, there's uh, negative effects of that. But it probably does make sense to do some sort of staged investment in evidence. So the first stage probably wouldn't be a full RCT. The first stage would probably be, let's pilot this in a, in a couple of schools, see what the reaction is, see if it looks like there's, it's, it's you know, even feasible to go on to the next stage or appropriate to go on to the next stage. Then, eventually, you might decide we're going to have a, have a full-scale RCT. Let's say it's a higher probability. Okay? Um, I'm going to put uh, uh, flossing as an example there because I just saw a newspaper article about it. And the newspaper article pointed out, and I... I I know nothing about flossing, so let me be, be clear about this. Um, they, it said that the RCT evidence for this is not strong, but the dentists continue to recommend it. Well, you know, my guess would be that the dentists, I don't know, and I haven't investigated this, but my guess would be that the dentists probably know what they're talking about and have some reason to, to believe this. And even if there are not many RCTs of flossing have been, uh, have been conducted, there are probably not a lot of statistical power to them, etc. So probably the best thing to do for your health is to continue flossing for now. But we should probably also collect additional evidence. But let me talk about something on the other side of that line. Let's say there is evidence for it, enough for a new drug to get past the FDA. Well, that's then... You know, probably if you have the disease, you should, you should, uh, consider taking the drug or take the drug if it's recommended for other medical reasons. But does that mean we should stop collecting evidence? Almost certainly not. The, we might not need to do more randomized trials. Maybe we should be doing additional randomized trials, even though it's already past the FDA. But certainly we should be collecting some data on what the impact of this drug is from non, you know, could there be side effects that the FDA missed in its, uh, in its initial trial? Certainly. Um, so it's worth investing in additional evidence in many of these cases. Okay. Despite the fact that there's enough ev- that based on the current evidence, it makes sense to go ahead. If we're not very, very certain, it may well be worth getting additional evidence, particularly if that can be done cheaply. If there's a super high probability of something, and if it's costly enough to do tests, then it's no longer worth doing, doing the, uh, collecting more evidence. Um, what are the cutoffs? I, I use these vague terms of extremely low, low, high, extremely high. Well, the cutoffs will depend on the cost of the evidence collection. Um, in particular, they, to be technical, they'll depend on the option values associated with the stage of experimentation. 
So some, in some cases, you might be able to experiment very cheaply to get it, and then you have to think, well, what's the chance it's going to pass this stage? If it passes this stage, what's the chance of, of going on, that it should, it'll pass the next stage, et cetera? But let me contrast this whole approach with one where, which I think is common in some communities, and while I think it's less common in the effective altruism community, I don't think it's uh, entirely absent. And that's one that sort of artificially discretizes these continuous probabilities into two areas. An area where something is unproven, and we say, well, we can't invest in it because it's unproven, and we, and we keep doing more research while it's still in the unproven category. And then there's a sort of black and white transition to another category where it's proven and you stop doing research. And that's not what would come out of a, out of a decision theory approach. You would have different cutoffs for when you implement something. You'd act now based on the best available evidence, but you would continue to collect, collect additional evidence as long as enough residual uncertainty remains that there's a chance you're going to change your mind. And that, I think, is a, an appropriate, uh, um, appropriate approach. There's some, uh, you know, on the technical side, what are some implications for how we analyze evidence? So I think where possible, we should use a Bayesian approach. Um, and that's, that's uh, you know, that can be hard to do, but I think it's worth the effort. If you don't have a Bayesian approach to statistics, if you have a frequentist approach to statistics, um, then you need to consider the power of tests. So often you hear about 5% significance level. People want to know that if they find an effect, there's a, only a 5% chance that it's not really there. But we should be thinking more broadly than that. We should think, be thinking about the power of a test, which is, um, and in, in particular, um, the power against a particular hypothesis, which is one that involves a cost-benefit analysis, the power against the hypothesis that this is not cost-effective. Um, or that, so that's, uh, and you know, one way to put this is we need to consider the cost of a false negative as well as the cost of, of a false positive. Now, all that said, so you might then say, you know, I'm a big proponent of randomized trials. I played a, a, a I think I've played an important role in, uh, in, you know, bringing these into development economics. And, um, so why, I'm now saying, well, we should consider all types of evidence. Uh, so why, you know, does this just throw all rigor out the window? Well, one, I think it's important to, so what is the reason to, have perhaps a special role for randomized trials and for, for evidence. Well, one, and for formal, you know, formal ways of looking at evidence. So I think one important role is to combat biases that we would otherwise be subject to. So there's psychological biases. Uh, people may, may be, you know, for reason, for a variety of reasons, they might be off, uh, you know, inclined to support, uh, you know, the, Activity with the picture of the cute kid or the or the cute animal, as opposed to less less uh, you know the uh, the animal that turns out to be you know super uh, conscience I kind of say conscience but you know intelligent but not uh, not so cute. Um, there's institutional biases. You know, there's if there are organizations out there and their survival as an organization and the, their continued employment of their staff depend on on uh, on promotion of a particular cause, they're going to promote that cause. And it's going to, and that's, you know, it's important to recognize that those biases may exist. And certainly, you know, um, I think that's true for myself. Um, and I think what is 
can be particularly pernicious about these biases in the development space is that there's a competitive market for, for donor funds, and people are competing, and how do they compete? Well, they compete by trying to make appeals to people, and those appeals, are, and these are situations where it's very hard for people to evaluate those appeals. It's not a consumer product that people are using every day. It's not even a, a, a politician who you can look at, do they have a track record, you know, a mayor who say, is the garbage being picked up or is the garbage not being picked up? It's something that if, you're, if we're interested in the market for uh, aid organizations that raise money in the developed world for the developing world, you know, there's not as many, uh, they're, they're dealing with relatively uninformed consumers and they therefore make face competitive pressure to make these uh, uh, emotional appeals that exploit psychological biases. So it does make sense to have some procedural safeguards. And so I think that's one of the reasons, as well as the fact that you just get better evidence for it, to put some special uh, weight on randomized trials, for example. But it's important to recognize that, you know, that's, that's, that's the reason, that's one reason to have these. And that, um, but that the fundamental decision should be made, made, made based on the full set of evidence, which, you know, the better evidence should get weighted more highly, but in some cases we just don't have the better evidence. It's very hard to do a randomized trial. We'll never have a randomized trial in Brexit, to, uh, for example, but you know, you should go with your, your best available uh, information. It's also important to recognize that there's a cost of delay. So if, um, as I mentioned earlier, in the development context, you know, a lot of problems are getting better over time. So if you're concerned about neglected tropical diseases, well, 25 years from now, we expect there's going to be a lot less worms for a whole host of reasons. More people are going to be wearing shoes, et cetera. Um, um, the, um, and it's finally important to recognize that if you wind up going with the safe alternative, the thing with a 0.99 probability of a return of 1 versus the thing with a 70% with a probability of a return of 10, you know, you're potentially giving up a lot of, uh, of welfare. Let me just uh, talk about a particular case. Uh, um, diarrheal disease is a major killer of children in the developing world. Uh, the NGO Evidence Action is providing water treatment uh, um, to millions of people through chlorine dispensers. It's extremely cheap. Chlorine's, you know, a bottle of chlorine, has, a bottle of bleach has a nut that you'd buy at you know, the drugstore has enough uh, chlorine in it to treat 70,000 households. So it's... Uh, uh, so it's, it's um, it's, it's very, very cheap. Um, so the estimated cost per life saved or DALI saved is, is quite low. And what's more, a substantial fraction of that cost is covered by carbon credits. So that implies that the you know, many-fold return on investment with the conventional valuation of DALI. So I don't want to, this number I'm just putting out for illustrative purposes, I don't want to uh, need to do more work to, uh, to try and come up with this, but, you know, perhaps something on the 10 to 1, uh, uh, scale. Okay. Now, what's the evidence on this case? Um, so we know for sure, so let me start with the non-randomized trial evidence. Chlorine kills bacteria that, that cause the key types of diarrheal disease. There's historical evidence in the, from, um, from as U.S. cities introduced water treatment, you see reductions in mortality that are very carefully, closely timed with the uh, with the introduction of water treatment. There's RCT evidence as well on the impact of cleaner water. 
There's RCT, many studies of RC, many RCT studies on the effect of, of chlorination, uh, suggesting that it reduces mothers reporting, or not suggesting, finding that, that mothers report child diarrhea went, went down considerably. But I don't want to claim there's no uncertainty. There is uncertainty. You know, one of the reasons, there are many reasons for it, but let me focus on one. There could be reporting bias. Maybe the mothers who are in the treatment group are, are reporting a fall in diarrhea, but there wasn't really a fall in diarrhea or not as big as was suggested. One thing you could theoretically do would be to have blinded trials. Uh, but there's, turns out there's just very few of them. And the results are pretty inconclusive. They often conducted in places with very low diarrhea rates, so it makes there's very low, you know, like one or two percent. So it's very hard to pick up, have statistical power. There's confounding with other interventions. And so then you have to think, okay, maybe the complete gold standard blinded trial isn't there, but we do have a bunch of RCTs. You have to think to yourself, well, how big do we think the reporting bias is and what direction does it go? And I've got a slide sort of pointing out that the direct, it's almost as, you know, there's, the reporting bias could go either way. The reporting bias could easily lead to an underestimate of the treatment effect or it could lead to an overestimate of the treatment effect. Standard theories of reporting and their theories and evidence on reporting bias and, you know, they could go in both directions. So let me skip this slide given the time. So what should you do? Well, you know, you should think about, let's adjust for this reporting bias by the mothers. There are other concerns. The mapping from diarrhea to mortality. Um, there's, I'm biased on this. I was involved in, you know, research on this topic. I've been involved in multiple things on, on you know, and I, some of them I get convinced by, some of them I don't, but, and, but, so I would argue that somewhat limits the, uh, the, uh, the bias, but I'm definitely, you know, have a, Having a, you know, I've written on this, so I may have a bias on this. Okay. Um, but there's also organizational, you know, you need to think through a bunch, I think much, personally, I think much more important than the question of does chlorination uh, reduce uh, diarrhea is the question of is the organization doing a good job delivering it, et cetera. Um, what's the, you know, what's the real cost, et cetera. So, but, and I've, you know, I've been trying to look into these things a little bit myself to think about how should we direct our own charitable organizations. And I guess my current, and I'm, I want to collect more evidence on this, my current subjective estimate might be, uh, 0.7. Uh, the, you know, so, so, sorry, when I say 0.7, instead of a 10 to 1 ratio, taking, you know, maybe, and most of this is not because of any other concerns of my own bias, but with my, let's say I put a, you know, Again, it's very subjective numbers, but I would drop off a 20 or 25 percent for my own own bias. So that takes might take me from 10 to one to you know seven to one uh, benefit cost ratio. But it looks huge, um, and I'm therefore you know when we, my wife and I are thinking about how to uh, donate our our um, contributions. Evidence action is something that we're, we currently intend to to donate to. I mean, obviously we're going to. Collect, well, we're still in the stage of collecting evidence and analyzing that evidence, not by doing more RCTs, but by, you know, looking at the, the numbers of evidence action, et cetera. But, you know, that's our current inclination. I, I, and I, uh, you know, I will stress again, this isn't meant to be, um, you know, I, I, there are many other things out there and I don't claim to have looked at all the alternatives and done a, uh, a, a perfect, uh, analysis of that. Okay. What's the, you know, conclusion here? 
I think it makes sense for an effective altruist to give according to the expected value, the probability of the impact times the value of the impact. There's costs of delaying until you get perfect uh, evidence. There's costs of being so ambiguity-averse you wait for perfect proof. Um, and it's therefore important to take all the evidence that you have, sum it together, and come up with some estimate of the probability and some estimate of the value. And that's not going to be perfect, but we should recognize it. And then when we should collect additional evidence, well, that's the same criteria. And that's typically, which is, do the benefits, expected benefits of the additional evidence outweigh the costs? And I would argue, typically, that's going to mean uh, that you keep collecting evidence long after, even even long after you've decided that based on current evidence, um, you're going to take an action. So thank you very much. Oh, um, I should say I'm happy to, to talk to people afterwards uh, uh, outside.